Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Well, if you enjoyed, I mean, the last two weeks, I mean, Ben, you're good. I really just enjoyed the worship sets. And so that's a preview of Wednesday night. So come out Wednesday night to my house and there'll be worship and prayer and intimate. We'll probably have some apple cider and maybe some um, COVID-friendly snacks where we don't eat, touch each other's snacks, but we have our own wrapped or something like that. But come out to that. It'll be great. Um, it's good to be together as a church family. Good morning to those of you online who are joining us as well. Um, it is a privilege and an honor to stand here each and every week and to deliver God's word to you. I don't take it lightly, so I want you to know that. That's why I put in prep time and study time. It's not the only thing I do. I think as a church planner specifically, I should be doing a lot of other things. Uh, Wes, of those of you who've met him, is my church planning coach, so he, of all people, will tell me that. Uh, but I do think that I need to take it important because it is God's word. It's not Matt's word that I'm delivering to us up here. And there's weeks that there's things that I don't even like necessarily that I see here, but I go, but this is what God's word is telling us. So I just want you to know that on the front end. Uh, we are continuing our series this week, We Are the Church, and we will be looking at honoring. And what does it mean to honor leaders specifically within the church? What does it also mean to honor one another within the church? This idea of creating a culture of honor. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to 1 Peter chapter 5. Once again, it's 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll be looking at the first five verses here in just a few minutes. Now, I must admit, on the front end, this message of everyone we've done uh, in this series is probably the most awkward one for me to deliver. Because in many ways, as we look at it, and you understand what I mean as we unpack it, it seems like I'm talking to myself here. It could even seem like I'm kind of propping myself up on a pedestal in some ways, but I felt like it was worth including. And the reason is, is that as we grow as a church, hopefully we'll have a what we call a plurality of leaders, a plurality of elders and pastors, that there won't only be a solo pastor. Hopefully we'll have uh, deacons and um, men and women who are serving in different capacities. And so it's not supposed to be about one solo leader. I think biblically what we see in the New Testament is there's a, a plurality of leadership. So I feel like it was important because we're kind of looking also at our future selves is kind of the idea here. Uh, but I feel like it applies to us as the posture we want. We want humble leaders. We don't want arrogant leaders. Have you ever served in an arrogant, prideful leader? It's not a whole lot of fun. It really is all about them. And so we want humble leaders, and we also want humble saints, church members. So you are the, are the saints of the church, and we want to continue to cultivate that uh, environment here. Now, many people today view leadership in a negative view. There's a lot of skepticism. There's a lot of criticism towards leaders. This is true in politics. This is true in business. This is true in education. This is true in the sports world. I mean, if you've been paying attention to anything recently in the NFL, this is true even in families. And so it's not a stretch at this point in history to say that it may be the hardest time ever to be in leadership. Distrust for leaders is at an all-time high likely because of all the hurt caused by leaders. So I think a lot of times you get that from leaders, and they're like, hey, you should trust me, and you should do this. But it's like, but look at all these stories in the church, out of the church. Like, how are we supposed to trust anyone in leadership? Who are these, these people? We were talking about it on the way here this morning, and Andrea didn't even know this is what I was preaching on, but we're talking about politics in other countries, being that she's from Argentina, how a lot of other nations, it's, it's kind of shady, and they have all these backdoor business deals, and they, apparently they were talking at a party that I wasn't invited to last night, because pastors don't get invited to parties, apparently, um, that how even in the U.S., that there's corrupt politics. It's just we kind of think in America it's a little bit better, but it may not necessarily be that way. They're, just, they're a little bit cleaner about how they do it. It's a little more polished and not as maybe openly and blatant 
um, as it is in some other nations. But the church has also been affected by this. And distrust for people's views of the church and leaders is at an all-time high. Now, I can sympathize with the anger. I can sympathize with the frustration, the distrust of self-serving leaders. Those who exhibit it's all about themselves. Those who have failed people. Those who have abused people. And we hear those stories. Unfortunately, we hear them more frequently than ever. Time and time again, how these stories take place. And so I grieve over that. I grieve over the pain that some leaders have caused to the people within the church. I hate it. It's, some things are just sickening. Others are just disheartening. And so I can resonate with that. And I've even experienced that to some degree myself. And I say all that on the front end because our passage this morning refers to, in part, honoring. And specifically honoring pastoral leaders. And some of you might balk at that idea. I get it. Our generation is a little like, yeah, right. No way. So I want you to stick with me this morning. Trust for pastors and ministers in general is at an all-time low. Barna Research Group, they estimate that 1,500 clergy leave pastoral ministry every single month. Now, I'm not sure how many enter it every single month, but 1,500 every single month leave. And believe me, the last two years have not made it any easier. The last two years have made it even exponentially more difficult than those in leadership. I have many peers, for one reason or another, who are no longer in quote-unquote ministry, who've left for a variety of reasons. But part of it is just the, the challenges and just they felt like everything was on their, their back and all the weight was on their back and the last two years have just made it so difficult. They just crumbled and said, here, I'm just, I'm done. I can't do it any longer. And so on one hand, I want us to be sensitive to all of this, especially to the, the mistrust and the abuse and things that have caused that within people. At the same time, and I said this on Wednesday night if you were there, we must, and I want you to hear the must, we must allow the Bible and the Holy Spirit to shape us on this matter. I think our generation, one thing that we're, we're guilty of is we let our feelings shape us on matters. We let our experience shape us on matter. Once again, I want to be sensitive. Those are real. That is your experience. No one can take that from you. But if we are trusting in the Lord and we're pursuing the Lord, we must allow the Bible and the Holy Spirit to shape us on matters of life. Not only in this, but every matter of life. We can't just go, well, this was what I experienced and this is how I feel. Like It's the Holy Spirit in the Bible, which is why at Sojourn we open our Bibles every single week. And we go, God, shape us. God, mold us. As that song said, I wrote on my notes, that we need your presence to fall on us. We need to be renewed with the Spirit of God. And so in short, we see both the presence of bad and good leaders in Scripture. If you study the Bible, you'll know this. It's actually nothing new. It's not like all of a sudden in 2021 we see these stories. It was, it was there in the New Testament, so it's kind of always existed since the fall. And that's not a cop-out. That's not to say because of the fall, this is why it's always going to happen. But in the real way, until the end of time... It will be that way. But regardless, we are called as the church to honor good leaders. And we also see that good leaders exist. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, he's not the one who wrote the letter to work at this morning, he often speaks about false teachers and corrupt leaders. Paul was known, if you don't know much about his life, he was like the greatest church player of all time. He went about starting all these churches, but he also went back to all these churches later and sometimes he's writing letters to them from prison or he went to visit. And they all have issues. <laughs> they weren't this perfect picture that he would have liked them to be. And, and they all had these, and one of those issues was people, uh, corrupt leaders and teachers. And he warns them about this sometimes. He says, be, be careful that uh, false teachers may come and be in your midst. And so he was clearly aware that there would be some dishonorable leaders. But Paul also wrote us about honorable leaders. Those, those who would be good leaders and faithful leaders, though not perfect, but those who would be pursuing Jesus in the way that they lead. Peter, the 
author of the passage we're going to look at this morning, he was apparently aware of this as well, because in his second letter, 2 Peter 2.1, he says, false prophets also rose, arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Tony Merida, uh, he's part of the, the, this series, part of the inspiration came from a book that he wrote on loving your church. He says, don't miss this. Just because corrupt leaders exist doesn't mean that the church doesn't have faithful leaders. And it doesn't mean that we shouldn't honor faithful leaders. Now, I want us to think for a minute. When you think of a faithful leader, who comes to mind? Specifically, when you think of Christianity and spiritual leaders, like who comes to your mind when you think of that? As I was thinking through this week in preparation, arguably, the, probably one of the greatest influential Christian leaders in U.S. history was Billy Graham, who's only, he passed away, I think, three, four years ago. During his lifetime, Graham, um, his preaching took him to nearly 200 nations, and he preached to more than 200 million people. That's a, that's a lot of people. Graham met and prayed with 13 U.S. presidents, and he wasn't partial. He, he, I think he was actually a registered Democrat, right? We would probably would have assumed the office. I was surprised when I learned that this week. And so he prayed for, for presidents all the way from Harry Truman all the way up to Donald Trump. He attended the inaugurations of six of those presidents. He actually delivered the invocations for two of them, for George H.W. Bush and for Bill Clinton. Graham was known for embracing the concept of civil rights. He preached that racial segregation was unbiblical at a time when it was really unpopular to preach that message. He became a friend of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. And in 1963, he actually posted the bail for King to get released from jail during the civil rights protest in Birmingham. I mean, I like learned different things about him this week. I thought, man, like most of us probably wouldn't remember him necessarily for those things. So it wasn't just the guy who was up at the stadiums that were packed up hearing him preach, although that was a huge part of his life. And so with the possible exception of Pope John Paul II, Graham can be said to have touched more lives for Jesus than probably anyone else in, modern, in the modern era and to have exalted Jesus directly to a greater amount of humanity than anyone else in history. This man had a lot of influence. But as important as Graham was, to presidents, to activists, and to even famous people. I think like even Rolling Stone did articles on evangelist Billy Graham. Regardless how well-known he was for those things, he was also known for something else. He was known for his humility. He had the platform. He, he had all the accolades. He was given rewards. He, he had all these famous people in his circle, but he was still known for his humility. Author Max Lucado, if you've ever heard of that author, he recounts a story of Graham who he said he witnessed an example of humility when he partnered with Michael W. Smith for a weekend of um, a ministry event. A few hours before the event, Michael and Lakato met to go over the weekend. He says, but Michael could hardly discuss the retreat. He had just met with Billy Graham, and he was so moved by what he experienced. And what had happened is the famous evangelist had called his pastor, and he called Michael W. Smith, and he said, hey, I want to plan my funeral. Now, this is at 94 years old, and so once you hit mid-90s, you're... You know, at some point, this is going to happen. Um, I'm going to die. I think if I ever make it that age, like, I'm going to eat all the ice cream I want. If Andrea's still alive at that point, I'm going to be like, don't tell me, babe. I don't want to hear it. I'm going to eat donuts and ice cream and all the bad stuff, okay? I'll get to heaven sooner. But at this point, 94, and he lived to be four, four more years, he was confined to a wheelchair. He was on oxygen. But his mind and his spirits were sharp. His body was seeing his final days, and so he was being proactive. He called them together. He said, hey, I want to discuss my funeral. I've got one request. What, what, you know, what are they going to do? Sure, it's your funeral. What? What's the request? Anything you want, what is it? Would you not mention my name? I thought, what? This is your funeral? Like we're remembering you? So don't mention my name. Just mention the name of Jesus. So you got this man who's been so influential. 
right? More influential, I'd argue, than probably any of us will ever be for Jesus as far as the, the crowds and all the people, right? He goes, I don't want you to mention my name. I mean, here we have the closest thing the Protestants have ever had to a pope who has preached to over a billion people in his lifetime. He filled stadiums on every continent. He advised every president of the last half century. He has consistently been at the top of the most admired list. And yet, what is his one request for his funeral? Do not mention my name. Mention the name of Jesus. Although he was a preacher, he wasn't a pastor. And so those things are different. Graham tasted new success. He knew what that was like. Yet he exemplified the type of humility that God requires, yes, requires of ministry leaders that we'll see in our passage. As we see that God hates arrogance, but God loves humility. You know, I think we, we've heard some stories of other, what, what, what at one point in time were probably heroes of people in the faith who have passed away, and then you learn things about their life later, right? Or somebody who's still living. But Graham, from all appearances, is one of those examples who truly lived what he preached. He truly exemplified the example of Jesus. Was he a perfect man? No. Did he do a lot of things wrong? Yes. I'm sure his family would have loved to have spent more time with him. But he exemplified this humility that God requires of leaders. And so let's look now at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. And the first thing I want us to see is the humility of a pastor. Verse 1. So I exhort you, and so I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So Peter starts by addressing the elders, which is the most common New Testament term for church leader, which is our leadership structure here at Sojourn. We believe in having elders, and because we desire to be a biblical church, we desire to eventually have a plurality of elders. We've kind of already noted that because we are a church plant, because we're a church start, we only have an A elder right now. We have a solo elder, which is myself. We also have an advisory board who... They're not elders, but I call them like elder lights. I keep myself accountable to them. I, I run any major decision by them. But our goal as a church is to have a plurality of elders. And so once again, part of this message is to our future selves. Um, in fact, we're actually presently praying that, that God would raise up or bring to us a co-pastor. And so join us in praying for that, someone who can kind of share the load. I just think long-term it's unhealthy to have a solo leader. And I think that's actually one of going to the early part of this message when we see the, the abuse that takes place and the mistrust. I think a lot of times because you will only have a leader. And so our desire is that we have multiple leaders. And so Peter addresses the elders, and he begins by calling on them for humility on the part of those who lead and who they are leading. And so in giving this exhortation to the elders, Peter referred to himself in a threefold way. First, Peter says, Peter, who is an apostle, he also served as a fellow elder, so he could relate with them. He knew what they were experiencing. He knew what it was like to go through the hardships and, and the benefits and the blessings of being an elder. And so he says, I can identify with you. I understand what you're going through. The second thing is Peter is a witness of Christ's sufferings. The reference of Christ's suffering is intentional. As Paul, if you've studied most of his letters, he makes clear that suffering is the pathway to glory. And that's just a kind of a side note reminder for us that we will suffer in this life. That that is the normal path of a Christ follower. It's a normal path of a Christian. But it's the suffering that is the pathway to glory. Think about Jesus. Jesus himself, he traveled that path. Was Jesus' life easy? Right? He lived in obscurity for most of his life. And then he had this public ministry. Like, sure, he had followers. But how did that end for him? Right? That ended for him going and having this gruesome death on a cross in front of a crowd of people where he was probably stripped, um, stripped naked. Right? How did that end up for him? Did he not take a suffering and a hard path? 
Peter actually observed Christ in his ministry. Peter had been there. He observed it. He saw the opposition as it mounted against him. He was present when he was arrested. And yes, he did deny him, right? Remember Jesus predicted, you will deny me. No, I will not. And what happened? He denied him. But it's likely, we don't know this for sure. I'm going to take kind of the liberty like the chosen would. And he may have found his way back to the cross after denying him. Probably in tears and on his knees or on his face, realizing what he had done. And the third exhortation that Peter, as he's kind of relating with them, is he says, a sharer of the glory to come. For, for Peter, sharing in ministry means sharing in suffering. Suffering now, because then glory will come later. And that this is the normal posture and the normal part of a leader and a leader's life. So first we see humility of the pastor, and now we'll see the second thing. Elliot, if you want to change the slide, number two. We're going to see the task and the heart of a pastor. Pick up in verses two and three. To shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So first we see the task of the elders is explained. And, and Peter's really concerned with their motives, not as much with their methods. Like, what is your motive for wanting to be in leadership? What is your motive for, for wanting to take this path? Because elders are to be examples to their flock as they follow the example of the shepherd Jesus who gave his life for his sheep. So when we look at the corruption of leadership, let's look at the church this week, right? When we look at that corruption, if leaders were following the example of Jesus, that would never take place. We see the life that Jesus lived like. Leaders should be laying down their life for the sheep. And Peter gives three exhortations to the elders and he wants to speak to their heart. He goes, here's the task that you have. What's your motives? What's your motivation for wanting to do this? And here's the, 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 the heart of what it is to be a leader. And here's how it is that you're to carry out your responsibilities that have been entrusted to you. First, he said, elders are to shepherd the church gladly or willingly in accord with God's will instead of doing it out of a sense of compulsion. In other words, nobody should have to beg you to be an elder. Right? So, so as you look at leaders in the church, like if someone has to beg you to do it, like please, 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 just do it. Like you don't want that person as your leader. Elders should not serve under compulsion. They don't want to guilt trip you into doing it, but they should serve with their whole heart, desiring it only because it's God's will for them. Those who serve should only serve because they feel they must, not out of obligation, not out of expectation. You know, I've met people before like, well, my family kind of put this expectation on me because I grew up in the church and I went to Bible college, did these things. Like, those aren't reasons that you should serve in this capacity within a church. Others just think it's going to give them some kind of leverage over other people. If anything, what should happen, and one of my goals is that as we would get more people and grow as a church, that we could see people come from within the body, right? Because people need to observe you. Anyone can show up this week and go, hey, I want to be an elder at Sojourn. And, and here's my resume to go, okay, you may have been qualified at that church, but it doesn't mean you're qualified at this one. Like, we want to look at the biblical requirements here. I don't care what your degree says. I don't care where you've served other places. Like, we need to do a thorough process here and take this very seriously. And for the record, it is a joy to serve as your shepherd. It has been a learning experience. It has been a lot of failing forward, but it is a, a joy most days. I love you guys. I enjoy you guys. There's days that maybe not as much, but overall. The second thing is elders are to do the work eagerly and not out of greed or for shameful gain. Elders must not take a leadership position because they think that's going to help bring them some kind of level of wealth. Now, let's be honest. 
This isn't a problem of most of the world, if you travel the, the world at all, right? The, the pastors who I worked with in India, most of them will never get paid anything to be in ministry and serve the Lord in that capacity. And so most of the world, this actually probably isn't much of an issue. So maybe Peter was addressing the American church, <laughs> but it is still possible in the U.S. The reality is, and I think it's good just to be open and transparent, the reality is you can make a pretty lucrative career in most of the U.S. in ministry. Maybe not as much in Portland, because in our city, like, nobody gives, and I think the average person gives like $10 a week is what studies show. Wes could tell us that afterwards. And so maybe not in our city, but a lot of our country, people can do that, and we, and we see that. I mean, there's been like... TV shows made on these people living like mansions and they have private helicopters and jets and you know like I'm still trying to figure out where when we can get a second car in the future which I actually don't want to get but Andrea would love it if we could do that <laughs> but you see this idea sometimes we hear this thing like a health and wealth message right and people said health and wealth gospel reality is that's not a gospel at all okay I'm gonna preach another whole message on that if we get into it and talk about that in Galatians or we see the the name it and claim it like we're not about that thing here but his point is that you shouldn't do it out of that motivation Right? Now, we looked at, I think, even a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was in a different passage, where it talks about um, caring for those who are overseeing or teaching the church. And so I think, it's, I think it's actually good to give. I think it's actually biblical to help provide as we're able to provide. But that should not be the motivation. Right? That should not be the heart behind it. The leaders of God's flock do not serve because they have to, but because they get to, because it's a willing privilege that they are allowed to do this. And so elders shouldn't complain about having to meet with people, preparing sermons, but it should be a privilege to get to do those things. It should be a privilege to shepherd and to, to help lead God's people. Third, they are to serve as examples to the congregation and to not use their place of leadership as a means to be domineering. And so we kind of see in verse 3 here that Peter shifts from an inward motivation to an outward behavior that we see take place. Elders are not to enter ministry so that they can be the, the ones ruling with an iron fist and to be in charge of my way or the highway. Right? And we, we've seen that in churches. Once again, I referenced this a few weeks ago, but there's a very popular podcast out right now about a church that was massive, had massive influence all over the country. It was, it was in Seattle, so it was right here in the Pacific Northwest, and it imploded. And its implosion, in part, was due to a very domineering leadership style. And so we see that happen a lot in the church. But what we're to do instead, it's not so we can boss people around, we're to exemplify the character of Christ. You study the life of Jesus. We don't see Jesus leading that way. We don't see Jesus living that way. But he serves as an example to those under his care. He serves as an example to those under his charge. And so followers of Jesus are to use their authority to serve. Right? We looked at serving a few weeks ago in the church. We're, I mean, in our, in our uh, series. And we're to serve in the church and be imitators of Jesus and how we serve. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And once again, I fell forward, but that's my goal. I want to be able to say sojourn, be imitators, not of me, but of Matt, but ultimately be imitators because I'm looking to Jesus. And then we want to reflect Jesus in our church. We want to reflect Jesus in our culture. And under such leadership, the right character traits, the church flourishes. Right? Sometimes people think, why do we need leaders in the church? Because it's biblical. Right? We can't get away from that because there's, a, there's something we've been called to do as a church. So I think there's a, a proper way. I know sometimes we're like, let's avoid all structure. And we have very little structure. I mean, just look around at our building right now. We have very little structure at Sojourn. But there is a biblical structure. I think part of that biblical structure is leaders, but not just anyone and everyone. There's a process. There's a requirement to be that. And so as a word of caution for us as a church, especially as we would add future elders, academic degrees and knowledge or administrative and financial skills, they do not automatically qualify one for leadership in the church. 
Those things will qualify you for leadership in businesses, in organizations, and maybe even other nonprofits, but not in the church. In fact, when we look at the biblical requirements, when we look at the biblical qualifications of those who serve in the church, they have little to anything to do with academic head knowledge. You can come in and tell me all your degrees and your Greek and your Hebrew and all these things. Right? That's a dangerous seminary, which I have two degrees from a seminary, is that you can puff yourself up with head knowledge, but your character is, is flawed, and it may have never penetrated down into your heart. You may not be living it out at all. Right? You'll meet those people. You get in arguments with those people a lot of times because they want to argue. Right? They want to show off their knowledge, and they want to be puffed up. Even not long ago, we had someone visit Sojourn on a random week. Don't worry, you're not in the room. They never came back. And it was like they wanted to argue with me. Like, immediately, what's your big theology, and what's this, and what's this? And I was like, whoa, what's, man, like, I'm glad you came this week. Let's go grab some coffee. But it was like, oh, what are you, like, you just wanted to kind of hit me upside the head. And I was like, man, we need people, but God, I'm not sure if that's what we need right now. And honestly, I'm kind of glad that person didn't return back. Just wasn't the right season for us as a church. The third thing we see in this passage is the reward of a pastor. Verse 4. We've already discussed pastoring is not easy. Burnout is at an all-time high. Those quitting is at an all-time high. So how do we keep pastoring people? How, how, does, how are leaders supposed to continue to do this? The, the good, the faithful ones. If you look at verse 4, I think it tells us the answer. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Jesus here is referred to as the chief shepherd, a rare term that actually occurs, to my knowledge, nowhere else in the New Testament. And so this reminds those leading within the church that they're fundamentally servants, that they're not authoritative dictators, that their, their positions of leadership is a precious responsibility, not a privilege in which they advance their own life and status and career. And as shepherds, they're reminded they serve under the chief shepherd doing his will rather than their will. You see, if we follow the biblical example, everything actually works out really, really well in life. I'm just thinking right now, even like marriage, all right? We get kind of like, what does this mean? Why submit to your husbands and, you know, follow the church? Like, if we live that out, it actually is a beautiful picture and a really, really healthy picture. Like, we wouldn't need counseling. We wouldn't need therapists. We wouldn't need some of these things that we have in life if we followed this out. And the problem is that we just don't follow these things out really well. And our generation is just kind of throwing the Bible out entirely and saying, well, I just, I don't like how they phrase that. Well, let's study it. Let's see what it actually looks like. And I want us to fight for that because if leaders of our church are following the chief shepherd they're following jesus we'll be doing jesus will rather than our will and i know that we're at church so i'm supposed to say this but sojourn's about jesus okay those at home sojourn's about jesus nothing else not about matt not about portland not about you not about good coffee although we probably some of the best coffee of church in the city of portland not about donuts we're about jesus and doing the will of Jesus. Are we going to get that wrong sometimes? Yeah, we will. We're called sojourn. We're taking this journey. And sometimes we get it wrong. But there's grace for that. There's mercy for that. And thank God there is. And so as pastors, they need to keep their eyes on Jesus, the chief shepherd, the, the real senior pastor. So if somebody says, who's the senior pastor of sojourn? Tell them Jesus. And who serves under Jesus? Matt and the rest of us. And it says here that we will be rewarded for our faithful service. Wayne Grudem of verse 4 says, it seems to indicate that the elders in local churches should fulfill their office in ways pleasing to God, not in order to obtain an honor or wealth in this life, but to obtain a special reward, an unfading crown of glory when Christ returns. 
So for most, like we hear those big names and the stories and the mansions and the private jets, but for most, right? Think about obscure pastors. I'm one of those. Think about obscure pastors. No one's ever heard of you. You're never going to write a book. I think some of those are probably some of the most faithful ones, right? And did Jesus come for the, the big, shiny, flashy ones? No, right? Jesus tells us to go to seek the, the people that no one else sees. So I think for most, a life of leadership in the church is actually a self-sacrifice. And is it worth it? Like, is it worth it on this side of eternity? According to this verse, absolutely it's worth it. Because it says, they will receive an unfading crown of glory. Think about this time when they had sports competitions and, uh, you know, the equivalent of our Olympic Games. They would get, like, these leafy crown of glory, right, that would eventually wither or, eventually, you know, die and you just kind of throw it away. Maybe they kept it. I don't know. I would probably throw it away. But this says that we will receive an unfading, right? The leafy ones fade away, but the ones that we'll get in heaven do not fade away. And that we'll get to return that crown of glory. We'll get to, we'll get to lay that at the feet of our Savior, and what a sweet moment that'll be. As we see our Lord and Savior Jesus face to face, and we're going to say, here's this unfading crown of glory. I never got the accolades on the other side of eternity. I never got the, the mansions and the private jets. And you might look around and realize, that, hey, some of those people aren't here. I'm not judging whether they will or not be, but they may not be. They go, man, but I've got this crown of glory. And Jesus, I want to give it back to you. What a sweet and glorious moment that'll be. Which brings us to number four, the pastor and you. Verse five, first part. It says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, you who are younger likely means younger members of the congregation. Listen up, boys. <laughs> who are more likely to be stubborn and resistant to leadership. Now, I am coaching a bunch of 10, 11-year-old boys, and I've about had it up to here with their stubbornness and not listening just on, like, passing the ball to each other. But here we're talking about in the church. And so it says, be subject. What does that, what does that mean? It indicates a general willingness to support the elders' directions. To be subject, to kind of go with the, the leadership of the church, trusting that they're following the chief shepherd, Jesus. And if they are, it shouldn't be a big issue for us to do. And you know that if you've been in any leadership position, and all of us are, it could be among our friend group, it could be in our family, it could be at work. It, it makes it a lot easier to lead if those you're leading are supportive of your leadership. doesn't mean that they agree with every single thing but they're generally supportive of what it is you are doing. And the reality is, when I thought about this first thought, we all think we know more than we do, no matter what our age. And I thank God I was not in a position to plant a church in my early to mid-20s because I would have told you that I was ready. I would have told you that I knew what, every, like, what we needed. I would have said, I know all these churches are doing it wrong, and we're going to do it this way, and here's how it would have looked. It would have been a train wreck. It would have been detrimental and thankfully, no one was laying hands on me, and no one was saying you're qualified to do that at that age. Now, I realize in my mid-30s how little I actually knew in my mid-20s. But I'm guaranteed when I'm in my mid-40s, I'll look back at my mid-30s and go, oh, my goodness. So I thank you guys for sticking with me when they're in my mid-30s. But I'll realize how little I knew. And I imagine that continues on through life. And you look back, you realize how little you knew and maybe how arrogant you were in different things. Now, why is that? Part of it's just a natural maturing process, right? We have to mature beyond something. The 10 and 11-year-old boys I'm coaching right now, when they're 12, 13, when they're 15, they're going to look back and be like, oh my goodness, look at those 10-year-olds. They're going to have another whole set of issues, but they'll realize that. And then the same way with us, we'll look back. But there's also this a part of a spiritual maturing process that takes place. I think that's what Paul, I mean, Peter is addressing here. So it doesn't matter actually your physical age, but where are you at spiritually in your maturity this is why 1 Timothy 5.22 instructs us church. It says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. 
In other words, don't go, oh man, this person's got this degree and they've done this, and let's just lay on hands and hear you're a leader. He says, do not be hasty. Don't do it quickly. Go really, really slow. I've been accused of being too slow when it comes to these types of decisions, but this is why I take it really, really seriously. I look back at my own life and go, man, I would have told you I was ready in my early mid-20s, but nobody was laying hands on me. Nobody was saying, Matt, you're qualified to do this and this. Like Eventually, that did come, but no one was doing it back then. A couple of years ago, we had a young guy who finished college. He was starting his master's. And as soon as he joined Sojourn, he wanted to be an, an elder. He wanted to go ahead and he wanted to preach, which are those are good aspirations. But unfortunately, this individual refused to follow this verse. This individual thought more of themselves than they did the process. Unfortunately, things did not end well and things did not go well. And so let me address those of you in your early to mid-20s. I know we might have some online. I know we have some in the room. Take it from your big brother. That's what I told the interns all summer because they were like 20, 21. I said, take it from big brother Matt. I'm not old enough to be your father, but I'm old enough to be your big brother. An older cousin. The church is not perfect. Leaders in the church are not perfect. There will be disappointment. In any church you go to, you can visit every church in our city, you can come back to Sojourn, and there will be disappointment. Only Jesus will never let us down. Only Jesus will never fail us. But, and I want you to hear that but, that is not a reason to neglect the bride of Christ. There is a biblical process that Jesus himself left for us, right? And sometimes we scratch our heads and we kind of go, why did you leave it this way? <laughs> it would have been a lot easier if you just stayed here with us. And some of those answers, we won't get this out of heaven, unfortunately. We just won't be able to scratch that itch. It's just like, I remember I used to be the Chick-fil-A cow, and I couldn't, like, I would get, you know, sweaty and itchy, and I would just have to, like, ah, I'd have to move my body like this. I couldn't scratch that itch. This is one of those itches you've got to put on your costume for Halloween. You just can't, you just can't scratch it. That's what it's going to be like. But we can't neglect the bride of Christ. We're still called to be part of community. That's the whole reason we're doing this series. I want us to be reminded that we are the church. And there are these things that we're called to do, and we're all called to be involved. Harry Newhoff um, said the ultimate consumerism isn't going to church. Now, a lot of times we, think, we, we hear about church, and you think, man, it's like consumeristic in the U.S., and it, it is in many ways, but I like this quote a lot. He said, that's not the ultimate consumerism, isn't it, it being part of a church. It's walking away from it. But ironically, much of the dialogue about why people are done with church pushes, pushes people deeper into Christian consumerism than it pushes them into deeper discipleship. He said, the mentality is, here I am, all alone, worshiping God on my schedule when it's convenient for me. That quote really hit me this week. Because once again, I think we're in this age of, it's easy to walk away. And you go like, oh, it's just this. But like, that's actually the ultimate consumerism right there. You know, it's like just having Netflix or Spotify. Like, I'll watch what I want to watch when I want to watch it. I'll listen to what I want to listen to when I want to listen to it. I'll create a, a playlist. And if it's too busy this week, I'll do it here. And we, we're doing the same thing when it comes to church. I'll worship God my way when I want to. 2020, 2021 did not help that. Why? Because we're all online now, right? And so you can go watch whatever pastor, whatever preacher you want in the country. And you, there's some really good ones out there. But I think the biblical, I think if Peter was here to us, he'd call us all in and say, listen, listen, it's okay to do that to a degree, but I want you to be part of your local community. I want you to press into your local community because God has something for you there. And the reality is, I know it's like, okay, well, you're the one saying this, but you don't need any of those other pastors. You need the pastor that God has provided for you. And so if you call Sojourn your church, if you call this your home, then here I am. Sorry. <laughs> Talk, take it up with God. And at the risk of this verse being misinterpreted, 
The purpose of this verse is not to encourage obedience no matter what leaders might say. The purpose is not to ignore all counsel and all wisdom. If a leader comes, if I come or any other leader in this church contradicts what God says, if we contradict the moral standards of what we see in the Bible, if we start violating the gospel, then you have my full permission to leave and to tell me and slam the door on the way out. I met with another pastor this week and I said, hey, man, if you pick up anything that, that sojourn kind of goes to a direction away from, from biblical Christianity, please call me. You have my permission. I want people to be mindful of watching, but the same goes for you. So that's not what this verse is saying. So I just want to make sure I put that out there. This verse isn't suggesting that leaders are exempt from accountability before the congregation because they're not. Leaders should also be held accountable. That's part of the reason we also meet on Wednesdays and we gather in a little more informal setting that we can kind of discuss, right? Iron sharpens iron, and part of that is the conversations and the studies that we have on Wednesday nights. And so what this verse is referring to is the humble, God-honoring leaders in the church. Okay? That's what we have to keep in mind, right? Terms are important. Definitions are important. The type of leaders we're talking about are important. Finally, let's look at the second part of verse 5. It says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's actually the start of a new thought, but it's in the same sentence, the same verse, where Peter has now kind of moved on from this discussion of leaders and the relationship to leaders in the church to relationships of others and with one another in the church. So it's really kind of this distinct section here, and it opens up further, but we're only covering verse 5 dealing more generally with interpersonal relationships within the church, so within all of us. And he uses this metaphor of clothing or of fastening on garments. Anybody got dressed this morning? I, I buttoned my buttons. To speak of this atmosphere of humility toward one another, which should characterize relationships among Christians, that we should treat each other this way with honor, with respect, with humility. And the reason for putting on humility is that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's what he says in the second part of that verse, which is actually a quote of Proverbs 3.34. And so no one is exempt. For Peter, this includes church leaders and non-church leaders, young and old, new Christian, mature believers, everyone in between. And this addressed to all of you. So he's referring to all of us this morning. Now, I quoted this last week, but I think we could quote this every single week if you haven't already printed out and put it on your mirror. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Church, do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others better than, the New American Standard says, more important than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So in this final verse, Peter's remembering the towel that Jesus tied around his waist when he filled the basin and began to wash the feet of his disciples. I think Peter's remembering the humility of those who serve Christ. It's void of pride. The Christian humility is the realism that recognizes grace. What is grace? It's God's undeserved favor toward us. Grace is what enables us to live this Christian life of humility. Otherwise, we can't live it out. Otherwise, I think deep down we're all prideful. We're all area. We're all about ourselves, right? That's why when you take a picture, we, we went on a little, uh, kind of like a hike yesterday. We took a picture. And what's the first thing I did? I looked and go like, um, no, my eyes are closed. No, I'm not smiling. I don't care if everybody else looks in the picture. I care how I look in that picture. And if I look good, that's the one I'm posting on my Instagram story. Okay? And Andrea's like, my hair was like, babe, I look good. Okay? <laughs> but it's the grace that enables us to live out this humility. And those of us in Christ, we recognize we did nothing to save ourselves. Nothing at all. 
which means that our humility springs forth from an utter and total dependence on God. As we remember the example in our Savior, Jesus. Jesus who had everything, right? He had everything, yet what did he do? He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And that, my friends, is the gospel, that Jesus in my place. Once again, think about it. If that's our example, and if leaders of any capacity in the church are following that example, we'll have a really healthy, we'll have one really, really healthy leaders, we'll have a really healthy church. And that gospel message that Jesus freely offered to you and to me and to our city and to our world, where we're given this place to belong in our way to belief that was provided by the work of Jesus, the ultimate shepherd who we follow. And so in conclusion, as we get ready to respond this morning, I think as we, once again, we're looking kind of at our future selves, but some practical ways that we can live this out is let's respect faithful leaders. At any capacity within a church, let's respect faithful leaders. I want us to love our leaders. And if we get the right kind of leaders and we're looking at these biblical requirements, we'll have those people. I want us to follow the example of our leaders. Let's be the kind of people that are a joy to lead. Let's pray for our leaders. Right? Even, at, even at our size, in our state, I do ask you guys to pray for me. If there's any, any of these I say, please do this, please pray for me. Right? It's hard to make decisions. It's hard to know if we're doing the right thing. It's hard to know to go this way or that way. And finally, let's create a culture of honor. Let's honor one another. Amen? Let's honor one another in the church. Let's be that welcoming environment we talked about in week one. Let's talk about where people can belong here. Let's talk about caring for one another and serving one another. Let's talk about honoring one another. So let me pray for us that we'll respond to that end. God, it is an honor and privilege to stand up here before the people of Sojourn, but ultimately before you. God, we want to create a culture of honor because of your example. Your example of humility that you came and lived this life. You went through the hardships that we go through, yet without sin. Jesus, you became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and you offered us a way to be restored and reconciled to our Father in heaven. And God, may we as a church, God, from the youngest to the oldest, from the least mature to the most mature, follow your example as the chief shepherd. And God, as we add leaders at any level in this church, whether it's leading and setting up or leading kids or leading and making coffee or preaching the word or playing music at any level that we would be humble as we follow your lead and your example and lay down our life for others. It's in your name, by your power, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.